when you think about like infinite time scales or infinite space or massive space or massive time scales, we tend to think that utterly transient things don't matter. And when we start thinking on cosmic time scales, we realize that everything we do is utterly transient. And so I do think that that's a good prima facie reason for being worried that our lives are meaningless. Similarly, we think that like utterly impotent things aren't meaningful, like they don't matter. And when you look at the scale of space and you become aware of that, it does generate a perspective in which, you know, human endeavors look much more impotent, like causally insignificant than you would have thought when, you know, you thought the earth was the center of the universe. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard Dr. Rob Willison of Harvard University discussing the feeling of life's meaninglessness that's sometimes generated by contemplation of the vastness of the cosmos. On today's episode, we'll discuss the notion that this feeling of meaninglessness can make our puny human lives seem absurd, to paraphrase the Incredible Hulk. We take our lives, our relationships, our grades in school, our careers, our hobbies and passion projects, so very seriously even though we're just insignificant specks in the grand scheme of things. The idea that this clash between the seriousness with which we live our lives and our ultimate insignificance is absurd is most strongly associated with the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus. This week's first required reading is a selection from the end of Camus' seminal essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. Here's some notes on the reading, yep. I said notes on the reading. Camus opens his essay by writing that, quote, There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental problem of philosophy, end quote. After all, other philosophical problems concern how we ought to think about the world or the particular ways in which we ought to live in the world, whether we ought to give almost all our money to charity, for instance. But the problem of suicide concerns whether we ought to carry on living at all, and is thus in a very basic sense more fundamental, philosophically prior, to all other problems of philosophy. Camus diagnoses suicide as one possible solution to the recognition that our lives are absurd. He doesn't endorse that solution, but nor does he argue that our lives aren't absurd. Instead, he advocates for embracing the absurdity of our lives. According to Camus, we're all real-life versions of Sisyphus, the tragic figure from Greek mythology. We're doomed to pushing the boulders that are our relationships, careers, and projects to the top of our personal mountains, only to see them roll back down again, over and over again for the entirety of our lives. But Camus argues that we can envision Sisyphus himself as our hero, for he defiantly embraces his boulder rolling. He doesn't give up because he recognizes the absurdity of his situation, the meaninglessness of it all. Instead, he grits his teeth and squares his shoulders and takes pride in his boulder rolling, absurd though it may be. So too, we should refuse suicide and passionately embrace our lives, 
absurd though they may be. Our primary reading for this week, Thomas Nagel's The Absurd, offers a less dramatic spin on the same subject matter. According to Nagel, it's always possible for rational human beings to step outside of the quotidian, task-oriented, first-person perspective from which our lives seem meaningful. From a more objective perspective, we see that there's no ultimate justification for the idea that our lives are meaningful, and thus no ultimate justification for taking ourselves and our projects so seriously. According to Nagel, what's absurd is precisely the clash between these two very different perspectives we can take on our own lives. It's not absurd for a dog to take their activities seriously, since dogs lack the rational capacity to take a step back and realize there's no objective justification for their seriousness. Human lives are absurd precisely because we're smarter than dogs. But according to Nagel, our recognition of the absurdity of our lives needn't actually pose a problem to be overcome with Camusian defiance, much less drive us to contemplate suicide. Instead, we can be content having learned something about our human limitations, and as Nagel puts it, quote, approach our lives with irony instead of heroism or despair. To unpack Camus and Nagel's respective attitudes towards the meaning, or meaninglessness, of life, I'm now joined by Dr. Rob Willison, the specialist in ethics and the philosophy of language who provided the cold open for this episode, as well as returning guest Dr. Lindsay Fiorelli. In our conversation, Lindsay will flesh out Nagel's argument, Rob will clarify the differences between Camus and Nagel, and then I'll defend Nagel's ironic approach to absurdity against Lindsay and Rob's more Camusian inclinations. Here's Lindsay. We take life very seriously, and we have these sorts of aims and goals, and we pursue it with this sort of vigor or passion. And we can also take up this external viewpoint that makes us doubt that those purposes or that those goals actually do have any meaning. So there's this kind of like external viewpoint that we can take that makes us you know, aware of the fact that we can't actually justify that the things that we care about in life are worth caring about or have meaning. But that in and of itself is not what makes life absurd. And here's where I think Nagel is disagreeing with these other conventional accounts. So some other theorists, and I think he takes Camus to be saying this, would sort of stop there and say that what makes life absurd is precisely the fact that we can take this external viewpoint and realize that, in fact, for instance, human life is this tiny speck in the world and, you know, or we're going to die at some point. What we do right now doesn't matter. And so we kind of take this, this, this sort of questioning stance And a lot of people, including Camus, I think, will say that's what makes life absurd. It's precisely the fact that it's meaningless or the fact that it doesn't have this sort of greater value or that it won't matter a million years from now. So Nagel is going to say that those conventional accounts are essentially laying out what he calls the external viewpoint. But Nagel adds another element to this definition of the absurd, which is that despite having that external viewpoint and that awareness, we're still going to pursue life with the same kind of vigor and with the same kind of care. And that is what he thinks is absurd. It's the fact that we know that we could take this stance or perhaps have taken
taken this stance to see that there's no justification for what we're doing as having meaning or purpose, yet we're going to go ahead and take the aspirin, for instance, for the headache, and we're going to form these relationships that we really care about or try to get this job that we think is really worthwhile. And so that's what I think Nagel's definition is. It's this juxtaposition plus this, it's not even resignation, right? It's just we're going to continue to live life like that anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess I took Camus to also have this sort of Nagel line that absurdity is generated by these two things existing at once, both the recognition of the sort of meaninglessness of life as seen from this objective point of view, and the fact that nevertheless here we are taking life seriously. And so like the reason Sisyphus is the absurd hero at the end of the myth of Sisyphus is that he really is putting his all into rolling this boulder up the hill and then seeing it fall back down and then rolling it back up the hill. And in Camus' imagination, he's able to be sorrowful about it sometimes, but also to take a sort of joy in his hard work at other times. And it's precisely like his recommitment to taking his life or his afterlife seriously that makes him the absurd hero, mm. even in in the face of this recognition of his being a tiny speck whose strivings don't accomplish anything. Okay, so you you take Camus and Nagel to be sort of in line with each other in that respect. Yeah, I really think okay. that where huh. where they disagree is just sort of in their prescription about yeah. how to think about this yeah. juxtaposition of our taking our lives seriously and like the emotions like yeah, what emotions like, we should have as a result. Yeah, Camus thinks we should take Sisyphus, who, you know, finds joy in pushing the boulder up to be this hero because he's overcome this existential crisis of the of absurdity of it all. And Nagel's like, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as all okay. that. Just a sort of detached irony is all you need in order to square the two things. I don't know, Devin and Lindsay, do you guys think that for Camus, it's it's the fact that we can take a certain perspective that makes right. life absurd? The way I was thinking about Camus is that what really makes life absurd is the truth, that there yes. is no like objective context of value that justifies from the outside, you know, any of our subjective strivings or reactions to things. And so it just seems like a less wimpy version of absurdism <laughs> than Nagel's. Yeah. Which would then explain the difference that you're finding, Devin, which is that Camus thinks this is something that like merits. Yeah, maybe you should commit suicide. You know, I mean, we need maybe or maybe there's no reason not to. Whereas yeah. Nagel is much more sanguine. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Nagel analogizes this recognition of the absurd and I think takes it to be a form of epistemological skepticism where his view is like, we can never fully rationally justify what gives our life meaning. But that's different than saying objectively, we can come to know that there is no meaning, right? Nagel just thinks we need to have a certain faith that there is meaning that drives us forward, whereas Camus wants to reckon with what he thinks is the fact of the meaninglessness. And yeah, I think you're right that that, that is a real difference. Well, and I think too, I think that the for me, the big difference, um, kind of in line with what Rob is saying, is that what makes Sisyphus's fate absurd isn't the fact that Sisyphus takes this external perspective um, and realizes that, you know, he's pushing this boulder up only to have it come back down again. 
nor is it the case that um, what makes Sisyphus's fate absurd is that he's going to continue to roll the boulder up despite having that external viewpoint. It's instead the fact that he's rolling the boulder up the hill only to have it come back down again. It's sort of outside of whatever perspective Sisyphus can take, his fate is absurd. And Nagel can't, Nagel wouldn't say that, right? So for Nagel, a mouse, I mean, he gives this example of a mouse, right? Anything without this sort of um, self-consciousness to recognize through this external perspective that you can question um, or cast in doubt the things that you'd care about in your life, without that perspective, there is no absurdity, or at least not the kind of absurdity he's talking about. You know, I'd have to kind of reread and look back at Camus more to to remember that. But I think Nagel at least thinks that he's at odds with Camus in that respect, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, yeah, I think Camus does say sort of contradictory things here. Sometimes it really does seem to be about the agent psychology and other times it really doesn't. But yeah, but, uh, yeah no, I appreciate the pushback on this point because I think it, it usefully highlights these two ways of even approaching the question, right? One way, which is Camus' way as depicted by you guys, which is um, there being an objective fact of the matter of meaning or meaninglessness and then how the agent who's trying to carve out a life confronts that versus there yeah. being this sort of internal conflict between these two different psychological points of view, one of which presents a life full of meaning and the other one doesn't. I agree that maybe this is just like a, an either an unresolvable or a very difficult to resolve interpretive question within Camus. I greatly prefer Camus to Nagel, and so I think I'm motivated to see differences that justify that preference. Right. You know, not not to disparage Nagel. I mean, I really like the Nagel paper too, but I, I find Camus' attitude more sympathetic. I, I think it's better. Mm. I just don't think that Camus would agree with Nagel. Nagel's like, there's no other way the world could be where yeah. our lives wouldn't be absurd. Yeah. And I think Camus clearly feels like if we hadn't had this sort of 19th, 20th century dark enlightenment of World War I, et cetera, where we realized that all of these things were illusions, right. we would never have come to feel that our lives are absurd in this way, that, that it's a modern condition. Um, but it's a modern condition that comes from recognizing that the world is a certain way. If it were the way that our four more faithful forebears thought, life wouldn't be absurd. And that might very well be borne out psychologically. I, I mean, I don't know about this, and so it could be sort of wrong of me to speculate about it, but you might at least think that there is less anxiety about things like absurdity in more traditional communities and lifeways. Yeah, so we just wrapped up a unit on the relationship between science and religion in this course. And one of the big questions that came into play there was whether a sort of atheistic, naturalistic worldview could make sense of the idea that our lives have meaning. And I think you're right that Camus thinks he's grappling with the fact that the sort of meaning that's generated by a theistic worldview is not generated from within the new naturalistic worldview that he finds himself confronted with. But then one of Nagel's really interesting claims, as you also point out, is that the sense of the absurd is going to arise just as much within a theistic worldview, um, because it really arises because we can never come to a sort of ultimate justification of the seriousness with which we take our lives. And he thinks that's going to be true even if we think our lives are meaningful because of God, because God's own existence and the meaningfulness of that existence can be put into question. 
And so whichever worldview you go along with, whether it's a scientific worldview or a theistic worldview, you're not going to have an ultimate rational justification for there being meaning generated. You just got to take either one of them on faith. Do you think that Camus would disagree with that? Yeah, I think Rob's right that that Camus thinks this is a sort of a modern problem generated by, you know, Nietzsche declaring that God is dead. Mm -hmm. Or at least it's a problem that we've only become aware of in modern times. Right. I think that distinction is probably more natural to our approach to philosophy than it is necessarily to Camus. And so that might be part of the reason why it's hard to nail down which of those two camps he's in. Yeah. But I find... I find it, from our perspective, um, more useful to interpret Camus as in the camp that the human condition is absurd, but it is a modern phenomenon that we have come to recognize that. Uh, And so now we confront ourselves, we confront this deep psychological need that previously was sort of naturally met, that in the modern world, at least amongst the intellectual classes, is no longer met. Um, And what's the right response to that? Which is not to say that I think his piece is meant to be responding to a psychological need. I think it's meant to be responding to the condition that we now recognize obtains. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think I'm also more sympathetic to Camus. And and just to talk a little bit more about this, um, you know, this this idea that you can't even justify your life from the perspective of something larger than yourself. So this idea of God, I found that lacking, uh, explanation for that lacking in Nagel's piece. And it's just mainly because the, the discussion that he had about justifications coming to an end were very much from within our human life, right? There's a reason that you can't justify why something that you do now will matter in a million years. And the big reason for that is that you'll be dead. So I just thought he was very quick in the section on, you know, say you have a very religious life and you think that your life has meaning because of um, some God that you worship. You know, I guess I'm not entirely following why he thinks justifications necessarily come to an end there as well. I mean, they do or why they come to an end in a way that makes it the case that life is still absurd. I mean, I think for the same reason that many theists fideists right think that ultimately your belief in god has to be founded in faith rather than reason right ultimately you're not going to have a knockdown argument that's going to convince somebody to believe in god who doesn't already have this uh propensity to take the notion of god seriously ultimately the existence of god and the ways in which god imbues life with meaningfulness isn't something to be rationally supported it's just something to put your faith in and it's precisely that kind of faith that nagel is is sort of prescribing we put into our own daily lives to continue to take them seriously even though we have the sense of the absurd i agree with you both but devin i suspect maybe you're right about this and i'm wrong but the way that you're describing nagel doesn't seem right to me i didn't read him prescribing faith in this piece a and b I guess I would just reiterate in a different way what I kind of take to be Lindsay's point, which is that if that's what he were prescribing and you were to take the prescription, the absurdity of life falls away, right? I mean, like the faith, like yes. the faithful don't find life yes. to be absurd. I felt like he was saying the seriousness with, with which we take our lives, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis, as Hume pointed out, is just inescapable. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen. But we're always going to have this sense of dividedness because we are capable and prone to taking this further perspective in which this critical 
perspective in which we ask for justifications and we'll realize furthermore that this process can be globalized in a way that isn't going to provide a satisfying answer. And that's why at the end, you know, he doesn't say like, we need to, we need to be faithful. He says, well, now we're going to be ironic. Mm -hmm. And like our lives are going to seem to us in the same way that like a spouse feels about like a (laughs) husband or a wife that cheated on them that they've taken back. I'm so glad you brought that up. because. it just seems like a it seems like a very different mindset and and to me that was kind of one of my disagreements one of the things i didn't like about nagel is that to me like nagel made this critical perspective this alienated perspective like totally inert yeah it almost like it doesn't have any like the examine life is there's no point it's it's inevitable but like it's no like you're not going to live any differently it doesn't seem like he thinks there's any reason to live any differently on the basis that you that you can be struck and that just seems like it's taken for granted and wrong because it might very well be like an argument for faith for example it's like yeah the reason that life isn't absurd is because there's more to our worldview than rational justification you need to have like more tools in your epistemic repertoire and in your normative repertoire than than just you know an endless series of rationalizations Right. You need something like faith, for example, and faith gives you a foundation that isn't available otherwise. And, yeah. and, and, it, and, it, and it might be not absurd at all. It might be that you, that you had a revelatory experience that grounds in a very confident and satisfying way your convictions and values. That just seems like it's assume, assumed away. Like, like Lindsay's saying, there's no argument given for why that's not a viable attitude to have about one's life. Yeah, that it's definitely that last thing you said that Nagel wants to reject. And I agree, he doesn't offer a lot of argument for that rejection, right? He wants to say that um, it may be that, uh, you know, men of faith think that they're not confronted with this absurdity because they've got God providing meaning, um, but they're wrong. And they, in fact, if they really did take this detached rational viewpoint, which they should take, they would recognize that they don't have an ultimate justification for believing in God and believing that he grounds meaning any more than anybody else does. And then, yeah, so there are different sorts of faith that can be invoked here, right? So when I took Nagel to be invoking something like faith. I had in mind in particular this sort of fideist skeptical faith that says, look, uh, we don't have great reason for believing in anything and we don't know anything about God's purposes. But what emerges out of that is just this human condition where we just do take our lives seriously. And part of the way of taking our lives seriously in the right way that leads to good lives is having a faith that everything is guided by God even though you don't pretend that that faith, you know, provides you a doorway into knowing anything concrete about God's purposes or whatever. So it just adds a sort of dimension of seriousness to life on the sort of ground level, even though it doesn't illuminate anything extra when you take this sort of detached third person point of view. But you're right that there are more robust conceptions of faith where somebody thinks that they can have sort of divine experiences and their faith lets them into real knowledge about the meaning of life. And that's what Nagel has to reject, I think, right? Yes, I guess so. It also just, it just seems like a bad misconception of faith Mm -hmm. to interpret it in a sense that's friendly to Nagel because it's like, you know, at least in many traditions, it's like faith is 
an activity of a certain kind. It's something you can be judged for having or not having. Sure. It's not like an inevitable, it's not like what Hume is talking about or, or what Nagel seems to be claiming, which is something that like you can't af- avoid, right? There's a difference in, in being like, well, just as a matter of like brute psychology, just in the same way that I can't hold my breath forever, I can't maintain constantly a, a mindset of critical reflection. And when inevitably I need to get hungry or, you know, go drop a deuce or whatever, I'm going to stop asking, what's my reason for doing this? I'm just going to move into doing it mode. And when you're in doing it mode, that just is, that's just, that's just what it means to have faith. I mean, that, that seems like a quite a counterintuitive. And I know that what, what you're talking about is something slightly more inflated than that, but I'm not even sure that Nagel adopts that. I mean, he seems much more like his main thesis just seems like this, the seriousness with which we take our lives is just in an, an inescapable condition of life. And so is, so are our moments of critical uncertainty, unavoidable. The more I think about it, I don't see how Nagel can claim that the very religious or very faithful are leading absurd lives. I think his thesis almost has to, so it's, it's interesting because he, Devin, you know, as you were saying earlier, it seems like what Nagel is saying or what he should say is, hey, if people who live their lives according to this belief and love of God, if they were to take this rational perspective, um, they would see that, in fact, they can't justify this, this external kind of um, outside of myself purpose. But I don't see how he can. I, I, so first of all, that's problematic. But like, secondly, the thing is, what makes life absurd is, I thought what Nagel was saying is precisely that we do have this combination of taking life seriously and realizing that we don't have a justification for taking it seriously. And it's sort of this internal within us, right? Within ourselves. And for someone who has a very deep, rich belief in God, they're not going to have that combination because they live their life seriously according to that external perspective, right? Like, I just don't, I just don't think that's right. I mean, deeply religious people have major doubts all the time. And if you read, you know, people's autobiographies who lives are deeply shaped by their religious convictions, they're peppered with moments and, you know, oftentimes whole, you know, months of doubt that seem to me exactly to be instances of taking this sort of detached perspective and asking, like, do I really have the objective, ultimately justifiable reasons for believing what I believe uh, that so structure my life usually? But then they descend from this doubt and they live a life that is deeply structured by these religious values, you know, in the same way that uh, Richard Dawkins lives a life that's deeply structured by his appreciation of science. In defense of Nagel, like, the sort of ground floor where you're living your life and taking it seriously, it doesn't just consist of, like, having a headache and taking aspirin and then, you know, feeling a bowel movement and going and taking a shit. (laughs) It's our whole daily lives where we have these deep commitments to things that we value, to loving relationships and to life projects and so on and so forth, right? Um, It's all these things that in our daily lives seem profoundly valuable that are called into question from the sort of absurd point of view just as much as taking aspirin to relieve the headache. And yeah, it seems to me that the function of faith in most people's daily lives is precisely to inform those sort of projects and relationships of value. Uh, And, you know, moments of doubt are moments of calling those into question in the same way that 
that the secular Camus can have his existential crisis. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I guess there are two things I want to say. One is, uh, what do we do with cases of people who are very faithful and, yes, have moments of doubt, but answer those moments of doubt with faith, right? With, with an awareness that, yes, I can't provide a rational justification, but I have this belief and I have this love and that's enough for me to not have serious. So does that make sense? So it's sort of, what do we do with cases like that? And then the second thing is, I feel like there's a difference between, and I don't, I'm not a religious person, so I could be mistaken here, but between the very faithful who, who have those moments of, you know, having this external perspective and nonetheless lead their lives seriously. And for instance, not necessarily atheists, but like, you know, the sorts of uh, model rational philosophers that Nagel might be having in mind. So I think that there's a difference between the kind of absurdity we might say exists um, in those cases. In the one case, you know, someone who lives their life based on faith might have these moments, let's say they have these moments of doubt and, and realization that they can't provide justification for their belief in a God. It seems to me plausible that they then go about their daily lives and, and projects still believing in this, this God or still believing, you know, in whatever way you want to use that term, in this thing that's larger than humanity. And that that's still there. Does, you know what I'm saying? When they live their, their daily lives. And to me, there's something very different between that and someone who doesn't believe in this sort of larger than life purpose and goes about, you know, I go about living my life without having this uh, awareness that in fact, I think that I'm living my life for a reason of faith for something bigger than myself. Do, do you know what I'm know. saying? Yeah, no? I think Nagel would say you're going about your life as if, you know, how you treat your spouse and how you carry out your, your work are problems of extreme significance, right? That's the seriousness with which you carry out your normal life. And yeah, you don't frame it in terms of religious significance. You have other ways of framing it to yourself. But yeah, precisely what you're go doing is is living as if there were this extreme significance to your life, even though you've had this this moment of ironic detachment. Okay. I mean, but I, I think that there are some people who are very religious who would not accept that explanation, right? I think that saying you live your life as if, you know, you have this really strong belief in God is kind of a problematic way of, of spelling out how people think they live their lives when they believe in God. Yeah, I mean, I think that some people would find that problematic. Yeah. But then again, I think a very common piece of advice within religious communities for people who are experiencing doubt is just redouble in your participation in the life of the church keep going to mass keep taking communion participate in the rituals and your doubts will over time dissipate and and belief will come back to you like i think like a a doubling down on religious practice rather than just a no 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 you have to have this sort of theoretical belief at all times is is a sort of very common tenet of of how you ought to be religious Two things. One, they're just kind of like many different ways that people pursue religious faith. And some of them might be consistent with what Nagel's saying, but others, if they are authentic in the right way, should, in my opinion, be counterexamples. Yeah. And it seems like the strength with which he makes his argument makes means like it shouldn't admit of counterexamples because he claims there's no other way the world could be to alleviate this problem. So that, that seems like a problem. But also I, I do, I think another thing maybe that I agree with, Lindsay, tell me if I'm wrong, that this is what you were getting at, or this is another way of putting what you were saying, is that like 
even if you were to say that like crises of faith were a, were a universal ex- aspect of the religious experience, they seem different to me than the kind of condition that Nagel is describing because they aren't generally the kinds of things that you just then like descend from and thoughtlessly continue in your religious life in the way that you thoughtlessly continue in your secular life. Yeah. They are moments and they are not the inevitable result of taking the, the contemplative perspective. They're like maybe necessary misfires or pathologies of taking the contemplative perspective that at least in very many cases in this classic narrative are overcome or transcended by ascension rather than descension, descending back into the mundane. And it seems like for Nagel, it has to be an inevitable result that when we take this perspective, there's no way of having certainty. Your conviction falls away. Whereas, whereas in the crisis of faith story, at least a lot of the time, it seems like that's a moment, but it is not the inevitable condition of taking a critically reflective conception. And, and that can be cured in a different way. And then the resulting attitude is not the ironic. It's an attitude of bliss, calm, conviction, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever, whatever John Brown had when, when he was charging Harper's Ferry, he wasn't just thoughtlessly going through his day-to-day life or what Robert Gould Shaw and the, the Massachusetts 54th had when they were mounting a hopeless attack on Fort Wagner. Yeah, I mean, so this is and, where Camus and, comes and, back. And they're, I don't, they're not being like Nagel ironists where they're like, oh, like, you know, this fort is like my divorced wife that I'm taking back and life, life is <laughs> kind of irrelevant. They're like, F, yes, like, we got to do this. It doesn't, you know, we know. And like, everything's in harmony. I, I you know, like, like, I'm not retiring my soul. I'm not retiring the, the, the deepest part of myself that asks questions. Right. That's with me. And we're doing this effing together. And whether people are right when they're in that psychological mood, it just it just doesn't seem captured by the Nagel. And therefore, also, like the depth of the existential crisis when you lose that is papered over to him. And I'm much more like you should feel like Camus feels like when everything falls away. It's like it's all good. I'm chill. Like I'm still going to keep dropping deuces and taking aspirins for my headaches and, 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 you know, accepting life like an estranged spouse that cheated on me because who can expect fidelity? You never know anyway. So might as well take them back. And that's not inferior to my old mindset. I, I, I think you should be like, crap, my spouse cheated on me. Like this is an effing crisis. So Camus actually thinks that in this respect, our confrontation with the absurd as secular people ought to be more like a religious crisis of faith, right? Yeah, and I kind of also agree with Camus. And then if you do freaking overcome that, I don't think you can really overcome it in the way that he thinks, like this radical freedom. But if you do, like, you are an effing hero. (laughs) I see the romance in that. You know what I mean? It's like to get to Wolf a little bit, he's like doubly disagreeing with Wolf. Wolf is like... You've got this subjective fulfillment. You've got this passion. And it's it's validated in some sense by this objective structure that's bigger than you that makes what you're doing worth doing. And Camus was like, neither of those things is there. <laughs> they are both effing illusions. And if your life has any meaning, and if there's any reason why you shouldn't just effing quit right now, it's because of the heroism that is available when you freaking recognize that and you go out into the goddamn cyclone without a hope and you scream into it and say, F you, like, I'm here. I might be a speck. I might be here for only one second. Like, every shitty thing that I do is just as irrelevant as, like, a crappy ant 
like slavishly carrying a fucking piece of sand to make it shitty hovel until it dies. And the next ants keep doing the same bullshit. And like, unlike the ant, I see that I am that chump. And I'm still saying F you. And, well, and like, and in, in that moment, when, when, when I'm not carrying my goddamn pellet to build the heap, and I'm walking back down to smell the pheromones and get the next irrelevant pellet, I'm going to step back and, and just affirm myself. And all that shit that you didn't give to me, the passion of doing something awesome, because no, I'm just rolling a boulder. Like you're ch- raising your child, like it's irrelevant. It's just another biological nothing that could be a dick when it grows up. You know, whatever, doesn't matter. I mean, building a house, et cetera, et cetera. You recognize none of it is going to justify it for you. And the only fire it has comes from inside you. And if you can light it for a second, then your life is meaningful. And that's freaking heroism. I mean, that's not my philosophy, but that makes sense to me more than like, life is your estranged spouse that you take back because there's no reason not to. <laughs> life I mean, will be different, that's right, that's but a- that doesn't mean it'll be worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That is worse. That's way worse. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I, I hate to even respond because I feel like it would be great to end on that note but now I actually I think that we've kind of I think there's been a slight mischaracterization of what Nagel says we do after we adopt that external perspective so Rob it sounded like you were saying that for Nagel we just go about sort of our daily lives with a sort of not resignation but like a lack of something or like an unseriousness or something and I think that precisely the point for Nagel it's an, at least an, an unmeta seriousness right 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 okay so an unmeta seriousness okay good because I was I think that what makes you know the absurd situation absurd to Nagel is precisely that we do go about life with just as much I mean that's how I understood him just as much vigor just as much faith just as much care like there's something precisely in that that makes it absurd but then I then I reach this other confusion with Nagel and I think that he ends his essay a little bit too soon for me because I don't understand quite what perspective he is saying we adopt. First, it seems like he's saying we still go about our day-to-day lives seriously, just as seriously as before, but then he wants to say that we go about our day-to-day lives with irony. And I don't entirely know how those combine or how those work together. And maybe it's because I don't know how he's using the word irony, but it seems to me like one reading of, of irony would make it the case that you actually aren't serious in precisely the same way you were before you adopted that external perspective, right? Because irony would seem to me to include that awareness of the external perspective through it all. If we do adopt this external perspective, right, of meaninglessness or whatever, um, and then we go about our daily lives, ironically, we, on- we can only really do that while keeping in mind that external perspective, right? That is what it is to be ironic uh, when going about your day-to-day lives. So that seems to me a kind of point against Nagel, because I, th- I think what he's trying to say is that we go about our daily lives seriously without that external viewpoint. But the second thing is just that I, I just don't even see how you can live your life ironically and also seriously in the way that he seems to use the word serious. So I, I'm a little bit puzzled by the kind of end state he reaches, uh, or he says that we reach in that sense. I, yeah, I don't know, Lindsay. I mean, I think it's I think it's possible that you're you're making a fair correction of me. Like, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit ungenerous. I'm sure I was to, to Nagel's perspective, but I, I'm not sure he contends that it is with like equal engagement and seriousness and passion that we that we continue in light of yeah. of this absurdism. But whether or not he's claiming that, it certainly doesn't seem 
consistent with the rest of his yes. language, you know, or descriptions where he's saying, you know, such dramatics betray a failure to appreciate the cosmic unimportance of our situation. He's kind of talking about Camus there yeah. and feeling brave or proud or defiant, you know, approach our absurd lives with irony instead of heroism yeah, exactly. or despair. I mean, that doesn't seem to capture what the Massachusetts 54th was doing. I agree. You know, the metaphor of the, uh, the, the like a strange partner that you take back, you know, you don't feel the same way about them as you did before, but that's not necessarily, it sounds less passionate. Yes. Whether he imagines that he's doing justice to the things that I find lacking, which I'm not sure how much of a claim he's trying to make to that, I don't think he is doing justice. Yeah, no, I, that's and that's um, that's sort of the just conundrum say, that I I, I think because he does want to say like there's there's a quote here that says we continue to live with nearly un, nearly undiminished seriousness in spite of them, in spite of the doubt. So I think he wants to say that we live just as seriously, and he says yeah. that at various points. But I but I agree even, with you, even, Rob, that. I don't see how you even can. Even there, it seems like, even there, he seems like he's conceding, right? Nearly undiminished. Right. And I think he's using that in a kind of, he thinks that that language is strong, right? But I, right. But I think you're right. And if it's even slightly diminished, it's different or it's not as serious. But in any case, I mean, it's yeah. super diminished. Yeah. But yeah. Well, that's the thing. In I any mean, case, so- I don't understand how we can have that irony and then, or say that we have that irony and still live with, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Devin. <laughs> I think one way of reading him is as saying that, look, most of the time we're going to still lead our lives with the exact same seriousness that we held before we came to this ironic detachment by contemplating the absurd. But that'll now be you know, pockmarked with moments of this ironic detachment where we realize that we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. And this can be a useful sort of moral tool in certain aspects of life where it is useful to sort of take a step back and realize that, you know, the world's not going to end because you, you know, flubbed the the public lecture today. But that doesn't mean that we're living... Whoa, 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 whoa. No one's flubbing anything. (laughs) That doesn't mean that the entirety of our lives have to be lived from now on with ironic detachment. I think he's going to say, look, we're still going to get sucked into our lives and live for the most part with neither ironic detachment nor Camusian heroism, just just as seriously as, as anybody, human or animal, takes their lives. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that works. I, I guess... I was thinking that the irony is more pervasive than that. Like, I I was thinking that he was saying that we live our lives ironically. Like, there is this sort of ever-present irony, even in the daily tasks. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's not just that it becomes ironic when we take the detached perspective. I think that cannot be the view. Because if that were the view, then our lives would cease to be absurd. Because absurdity is generated by this really strong mismatch between these two perspectives. And for that mismatch to be generated, it can't be the case that our daily lives are conducted always with this sort of irony, right? And he clearly doesn't think he's defeating the absurd by proposing this ironic detachment. He's saying that this ironic detachment is the right response to those moments in which we recognize, in which we do step back and take this objective perspective. But we're still leading our absurd lives where the vast majority of the time we take ourselves entirely too seriously from that ironic perspective. So absurdity is there. Our lives are absurd even when we aren't taking this ironic detached perspective. So there is an objective kind of standard of absurdity here like there is Let's a just, just say an objective that the perspective is detached but not that the perspective is ironic right because i think the irony is generated by 
the relationship between the perspective that's taken and the truth of our aspirations. Yeah. As opposed to just being inherent in the perspective itself. It's a response to the recognition of that clash. Right. Okay. But that doesn't mean it's a sustained response that, you know, follows you all the way into your daily life. Hmm at all i I didn't i didn't mean to be making that second point although i'm not denying it but i mean i guess i i wish Mm -hmm. that i wish that he said a little bit more of what you claimed he said Devin. i mean i think i agree with you that there's a certain sense in which of course he doesn't always think that we're in this detached mindset it's more that like our condition is defined by the fact that we are prone to it and like we live in the times intermediate to those moments right. which are inflected by them having occurred right and coming and and always being ready to come again but it's like i thought you made more of a case for the value of yeah what i will call like the critical stance the stance of stepping back and taking a critical attitude towards those things that we're organically involved in on a moment to moment practical basis I think that you valorize that and show the value of it in a way that Nagel's way of framing almost makes impossible because it, first of all, it makes it seem inevitable like digestion or some human condition. Um, that's not something, you know, Socrates made it like a moral obligation and because like, it just seems like the place it gets you is utterly inert because it is this, this global thing that seems very different from like taking a critical perspective towards something you're doing from a bigger but stable perspective of value and saying like, you know, should I really be teaching at a fancy university, like given what my values are? And, and but then you're like, stay, and, and, and it's very clear, like what is important about that? But if you're saying that like, ultimately this is just naturally like an infinite regress and you're going to end up looking at things from the perspective of the stars and from the perspective of the stars, it's just stipulated that there's no reason to value one thing instead of another on the scale of your own puny life. To me, that's giving short shrift to the importance of this, what to me is the philosophical enterprise of critical thought. Thanks to Dr. Lindsay Fiorelli and Dr. Rob Willison, both of whom will be rejoining the podcast next week to continue our conversation, and in particular to discuss Susan Wolfe's recent but already influential book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. In that book, Wolfe argues that elements of our lives are objectively meaningful, despite Camus and Nagel's claims. For example, Wolfe will argue that the activity of studying philosophy is not only subjectively fulfilling, but also can be recognized to be valuable from an objective point of view. Wolfe's argument raises a series of fascinating questions. What makes studying philosophy subjectively fulfilling? What could make it objectively valuable? Does it have to be objectively valuable in order for the fact that it's subjectively fulfilling to make it a meaningful activity for us humans to engage in? Do we maybe have to, somewhat paradoxically, study philosophy, the philosophy of the meaning of life, much more deeply in order to figure out whether or not studying philosophy makes our lives meaningful? And what is philosophy, exactly, anyway, such that it could help us figure something like that out? That's what we'll talk about next week, on episode 15, the final installment of Dialogues, Meditations, and Health.